When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ever since we started this show, we've had the privilege of being invited to share our story on other folks' great podcasts. One of those very shows is What's Your Story by longtime friend of the pod, Matt Story, who you've heard more than a few times on this podcast. Way back when in 2020, Matt flipped the mic on us, inviting us to share some of our story. We hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Matt and be sure to check out Matt's show, What's Your Story, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. What's up, everybody? My name is Matt Story, and I'm the host of What's Your Story podcast, where I get to sit with leaders from all different fields and industries to learn how their experience as a person of color has helped them to blaze a new trail and make a unique impact on our world. Today's guests are Sharon Lee Tony and Raman Sagal, co-hosts of the Modern Minority Podcast. In our discussion, we touch on various topics such as growing up surrounded by the majority culture and also growing up surrounded by your own culture and what implications that has as you go through life. We also touch on our shared experiences of being in biracial marriages and raising our children and what are the steps we're taking to ensure that they're exposed to both diverse cultures, but also being prepared for the world. And lastly, we touch on what are our thoughts on how you can actually scale empathy And I do want to call out that when we recorded this episode, the title of their podcast was actually Model Minorities. And we spent a bit of time talking about that on my episode on their podcast. So you can definitely listen to that to get a bit more background. But they've since changed it to Modern Minority. So if you get a little confused throughout the episode, just wanted to clear that up. And with all that, let's get on to their story. Okay, so today's guest, they were actually gracious enough to allow me to share my story on their podcast, their their podcast uh, called Model Minorities. And so we decided it was only fair to flip the mic and have, have them on What's Your Story to share their story. So I'd like to welcome Sharon Lee Tony and Raman Segel to the show. Appreciate you both coming on. Thanks for having us, hey, Matt. Matt. Hey, Matt. Is this like a crossover episode? I feel like that's... You, you, yeah, it's kind of tough when you got three people. So I, I would say it's it's technically crossover. We're, we're you know we're flipping the mic, if you will. This is like a Marvel team up. Good. Yeah, this, this is actually Raman and I's first joint podcast interview together. Like where oh, we've been on someone else's show. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, you're lucky. Nice. You're our first. I, I am. I am. And and speaking of speaking of lucky or unlucky, Sharon, I want to start with you. How, how did Raman convince you to do a podcast with him? Oh my gosh. So Raman had this project that he was doing. Was it because you were turning 40, Raman? Yeah. 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 So Raman, so now I don't know how old, how old you are, but he interviewed. <laughs> Older than 40. <laughs> he interviewed a bunch of his friends and it was this interesting kind of like everything from like, Hey, do you remember how we first met? And kind of going down our whole relationship and any highlights from there and just kind of, it was almost like the spoken word, like I'm spoken his, like an oral history sort of a thing. And in that interview, he brought me to tears and I was like, wow, that's like super powerful that through a conversation, it just kind of brought up all of these amazing touch points that we both shared. But then he also kind of dug deeper into, you know, where I am now in my life and that kind of thing. 
So I basically, I, I make I make women cry. So yeah, basically. that's <laughs> one of his. That's probably one of his top skills. So fast forward a couple months later, he randomly calls me, and I'm literally like, you know, on a public bus. And I'm like, huh, Robin Sagal, like he never calls me. Right. So he, I, I pick up the phone and I'm like, Hey, what's going on? He's like, I've got this idea. I, I really want to do this podcast about, about race, but I don't want to talk about race. I just want it to be about the things that everybody is thinking about and like things that are in our minds or things that shape us. And I, I was thinking it'd be really cool if you could co-host that with me. And I was like, okay, <laughs> kind of out of the blue, <laughs> but I was like, and then I was kind of like, yeah, of all the people to do this and to do this well, I think Roman would be the guy to do it well because in my own experience with him being on the other side of the mic, he was able to make me feel so so deeply about something that and, and to to kind of put me in a, a place where I was both vulnerable but where I, I, I walked away feeling as if our, our connection between each other was a lot stronger and where we had like a mutual a better mutual understanding of each other's lives and each other's perspectives. And with that, I blindly dove into podcasting for the first time. Nice. And and so Robin, I have to ask you one, why podcasting? And then two, why a podcast on race? Yeah. Or um, not on race, <laughs> on race, but not on race. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've been podcast obsessed for years. Matt, when, you and I used to work together. And when we were working, we had a mutual friend, Rajiv, who you know quit, became a comedian, but he actually launched a podcast. And this is in the age of iPods, no iPhones, right? And he was in LA. I didn't talk to him as much, even though we remain close friends to this day, but you know, distance. And I listened to every episode of his podcast. And I felt like, I, and he was talking to these like comedians, entertainers, politicians. And I felt like it was a fly on the wall in this room, this really great conversation. So that kind of planted the seed and the love way back when. You know, my then girlfriend, now wife, listened to so many podcast documentary style on road trips. And then as a father, sitting in my daughter's room in the dark, waiting for her to go to sleep, listening to Terry Gross, Alec Baldwin, the Pod Save America guys, Kara Swisher, I just, I, I fell in love with conversational narratives. And um, as I was approaching 40, I, I was flirting with this idea of starting a podcast, but I didn't know what to do. And I, I definitely felt I couldn't do it alone. And so the interview project was kind of like an interim step. I, I literally want to have conversations, not just about where we've been, but where we're going, because I still don't know where I'm going. And ask 40 people, old friends, old girlfriends, bosses, old bosses, mom, my mom, these questions, and I could kind of like hone in on answers. But I also discovered in deep in friendships, like Sharon and I have known each other our entire professional career. She was at, she was my cool New York City agency buddy while I was like the dorky interactive marketing manager on a dandruff shampoo brand, right? And I'd come to New York, or I moved to New York, and we just started hanging out more. And I think our lives kind of paralleled each other. We're both in mixed race marriages. We both have young kids. We both struggle with a lot of the work-life stuff anyway. And so when it came time to, to, to have a conversation on race, I knew I couldn't do it alone. And I knew I, I didn't want to restrict it to just race. I think gender is another thing we don't talk about enough in this country. I think um, I, I cast no illusions. I have way too much privilege. But being being a man, even, I have privilege as a man. And 
I, there are some episodes like we try to do like uh, a male female we alternate but like sometimes i just decide to sit back and shut up and let sharon and the female talk i'm like oh i'm learning something that i didn't know an yeah. uncomfortable truth there are and, been several times when Roman has tried to mansplain things and we're like no 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 <laughs> <laughs> And I need to be called out on it or, you know, you, you, I'm, you can't be unconsciously unconscious about it. Right. Like you. And so I think to me, it's, I'll tell one last story. 2008 Cincinnati, my roommate at the time was kind of a moderate Republican who was going to vote for the other guy. And we, we'd had lots of political debates, the Arizona immigration law, uh, Arizona, Alabama immigration law passes. And I don't know if you remember this, but it was basically, we can pull you over. If you don't have ID, you go to jail for the night. And this was really upsetting to me. And I was volunteering on the Obama campaign, just knocking on doors and just starting to become more socially active, socially aware. And I'm trying to explain to my roommate why this is a big deal, why this matters. She's like, I don't, some matter, just carry ID. I was like, dude, my dad lives in Alabama, has a thick Indian accent and started going to a Planet Fitness to the gym and he forgets his ID. He's forgetful. My dad's going to get pulled over and go to jail. Yours is not. And in that moment, he's like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And to me, that that moment was the moment where I was like, oh, we all have those blind spots. And and how can you communicate those blind spots through other people's story um, to create greater empathy? Because if we actually all walked in each other's shoes just a little more, I think we would be slightly less of an asshole. That's my thesis, I think, and I'm sticking yeah. to it. <laughs> no, I, I think that that's spot on. And, you know, from from my perspective... I see it as those blind spots actually prevent us from seeing other people's superpowers. And, and yeah. we don't, we don't, we take it for granted or we don't even know what that person has been through or what that person actually navigates through on a daily basis. And, yeah. and it doesn't allow us to fully see them. So I, I think that's, that's spot on, but to, to help everyone that can't see you because we are on a podcast, I would love it if each of you could just quickly give a little bit about your kind of upbringing. What, what was the little version like and, you know, touch on some of those things that really shaped who you are today and kind of put you in a position to both be, recognize some of those privileges and also recognize some of those disadvantages. Sure. So I've got blonde hair, blue eyes, and I'm from the Midwest. I'm Chinese American. I was born and raised in New York City, and I lived very close to Chinatown. And so my parents are, my mom is an immigrant. She grew up in Hong Kong and she came over to the U.S. for college. And my dad was born in New York, but his parents immigrated over from China. So growing up, I grew because I grew up near and around Chinatown, my elementary school was actually zoned within Chinatown. And my elementary school was primarily Chinese kids. So 90 something percent of the school was Chinese. I stayed in public school my whole, all through, you know, my, my education up until college. Um, so my middle school was in a district that was a little more diverse with um, different races, but mostly minorities. So it was Chinese, Latino, and black primarily, and then maybe like a very small percent of, of, of Caucasians. And then the high school that I went to was a specialized high school. So like all the nerdy smart kids (laughs) and over half of those uh, students were Asian. So I I, I talk about this a lot on our podcast, but growing up, I never felt like I was part of the minority because I was surrounded by people of color all of the time. And it wasn't until college-ish or even really after college where I stepped into the corporate world and looked around me and didn't see anybody that looked like me. And not only that, I also didn't see anybody 
really in leadership positions that was female. So it was the first time that I felt completely out of place. And it was interesting because growing up also kind of in immigrant communities, working in a corporate atmosphere was also very new, right? So even though my parents, my parents were successful, they had their own business. A lot of small business owners happen to be immigrants. And so like being a restaurant owner, being a owner of an insurance agency, which is what my parents do, they're all their own business owners are very successful, but they've never had to work a nine to five. They've never had to learn how to navigate having a manager and a senior manager and a director and a 360 performance review and all of the politics that go along with it. And so I found myself really kind of in a foreign land for the first time. And so my, I think my journey is, is probably pretty similar to a lot of, you know, people that grew up either in immigrant cultures or communities. Whereas I think Romans is really interesting because he's completely different with his, with his background. (laughs) I'm not from Chinatown. That's for sure. That is true. (laughs) I grew up in Alabama, but before that, my parents are both immigrants, both are Indian ethnically. My dad was born, if you, a little bit of history lesson, the British owned the entire Indian subcontinent. And um, after Gandhi, they decided to split it up into a Muslim country, Pakistan, and a Hindu country, India, and which Gandhi and all actually didn't want. But my dad lit, was a Hindu living in Pakistan. And um, so when this happened, partition, you basically ran for the border or you were going to get killed because there's a lot of hate between the two. So my dad as a little boy, left everything behind, grew up, you know, middle class, New Delhi. After his dad died, he left for Canada as an architect in the 60s, well ahead of the Asian kind of wave in the 70s. My mom, while Indian, was born in Africa, in Uganda, which another one of your guests actually has the exact same story. And then Idi Amin came into power, you know, threatened any Asian by gunpoint, get out, you're taking our jobs, we're going to kill you. Um, So they fled to England and kind of lived there without their parents for a few years, doing jobs, whatever. Eventually, arranged marriage, they end up in Alabama. (laughs) And, uh, and, And why all that's important is like, what I've met so many Indian people that have a more quote unquote traditional story. And my parents always had a more liberal view assimilation and becoming acclimated was more important than anything else. Being a kid in Alabama, there were only like 10 or 15 Indian families when my parents were bringing us up. And I actually, other than like those dinner parties and going to temple once a month, I felt like I was a white person because we lived in a white neighborhood. We had a couple of black friends, but in the South, race is very segregated. And this isn't Jim Crow segregation. It's there's a black lunch table. There's neighborhoods where the black people live and neighborhoods where the white people live just because of socioeconomics. And honestly, my dad, I mean, he's a professor at Tuskegee, historically black college, and my mom's best friend is a black woman. But we effectively grew up as white people in Alabama with a little bit of Indian culture. And so I wasn't connected to my Indian culture. I didn't even know I was Punjabi, which is the type of Indian I am until I was like 18 or 19 visiting my family in England because we were more connected to my mom's family in England, not my dad's family in India. So by the time I get to Cincinnati and Matt, when we met, like I, still didn't know enough about myself as an Indian person. And I don't always identify as that. My wife uh, is Chinese American, has a very similar story. And we're American more than anything else. But honestly, like this lack of culture, I don't want to say it's lack of culture. I know enough about the language. I know enough about the food. And since then, I've backpacked around the world, right? But has like almost kicked off this insane, insatiable curiosity for not just wanting to learn about myself, but to learn about myself through others. Like I would literally, I remember 
at our job, like I sought out the Venezuelan guy because I want to know more about him because I saw in him and his wife, my parents' story, you know, coming over for a job, et cetera, raising their kid in a foreign country. But it's it's just been like this motivating factor and it's definitely driven by kind of this outsider coming in thing that I've always had my whole life. Wow. Yeah. Like it, it, I had so many things I wanted to, uh, to jump in on and ask about. So I'm, I'm going to go back a little bit and, and first for you, Sharon, I, can you like give a, either an example or a story of what it was like when you, when you hit corporate America, uh, and had to have that first kind of experience where you, as you, you said, you entered the foreign land from what you were exposed to previously. And, and also like, what were the things you, you pulled from to navigate that space because you didn't really have someone to ask, like, you know, this is a 360 review, like something that, that feels very standard for most. Like, like how, how did you, how did you navigate that? Sure. So I'll tell you a pretty embarrassing and funny story. When I first started working, I worked for an advertising agency and ad agencies, when you, when you're starting at the bottom, you literally work, I don't know, 12 to 15 hours a day. And that's pretty standard. And you get paid nothing. So I was getting paid nothing. I was working ridiculously long hours. And I knew I had a lunch hour though, right? That's what they call it, a lunch hour. So I would leave the office at whatever, 12 or 12.30 for my lunch hour. And I'd come back an hour later, like 1 or one thirty, like a full 60 minute lunch hour. And I was doing this for the first, I don't know, about month of my job. Just kind of thinking that that's what you do because it's a lunch hour. <laughs> And my supervisor pulled me into her office, you know, about 30 days in. She was like, Sharon, I've noticed that you've been going out to lunch. And I was like, yeah, I have been. And she was like, <laughs> you've been taking the full hour. And I'm like, uh-huh. Like, kind of like, what's this about? Yes. And she was like, well, you know that we're really busy, right? And I was like, yeah. Like, I, like I, was, I just kind of still wasn't getting it. I was like, yeah, what do you mean? She was like, Nobody else on the team is taking a full 60 minutes. And I was like, you guys aren't? Like, I didn't notice because I'd be out for the whole hour. Or, <laughs> you know, grabbing lunch, coming back or ordering in or never leaving their desks even for lunch. And I was like, oh, I'm like, is this not allowed? And, you know, she can't legally, she can't tell me that I'm not allowed to take my lunch break. So the conversation was like kind of this dance of like, well, yeah, you're technically allowed a lunch hour, but we sort of don't do that here because that's just like culturally and corporately part of the way it goes. And I was like, holy crap. So the next day I came back in, I like brought my lunch from home that day. And I was like, I'm not leaving. I want to see actually what everyone does. And lo and behold, Matt, no one took lunch. I was, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was leaving every single day to take my lunch. Um, so that was, you know, that was just kind of like this aha moment. I was like, no one told me, like, I never learned that in school and I didn't have a mentor to take me aside before my supervisor got to me and be like, you know, Sharon, that actually isn't allowed. And that's kind of not what we do. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so that was one. Another interesting one was I, I think I went to an event that was hosted by an agency that specialized in multicultural marketing. And I had gone there because I was just super interested in that sort of like that, that part of the industry. But I also wanted to kind of network and see who everybody else was, you know, because again, in my agency, I didn't feel like there were a lot of people like me. So I'm not going to mention the name of the agency because it's kind of interesting. So the, one of the agencies there was a, a, an agency that specialized in Asian American marketing. And somehow 
I think I ended up sharing a cab with the CEO of that agency when we were leaving the event or somehow I got kind of got like, like five minutes with him privately. I can't remember exactly how this happened, but I was so stoked about that. Cause I was like, Oh my God, this is my dream. My dream is to run my own company one day. And now I get to talk to someone who's doing it. And I'm, get, I'm talking to someone who looks like me and who's also working in the realm of marketing to people like me. And I said to him, Mr. So-and-so, you know, you're exactly where I want to be one day. Do you have any, like, what's some advice that you give to somebody like me? Cause I just started out and I'm working here and I was kind of giving him my whole resume and he looks me right straight in the eye and he goes, quit now while you can get out while you can. I was like, whoa, Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) that's not what I was thinking, you know? And it was this weird thing. I kind of had a weird look in my face and he was like, this industry isn't made for you and me. And he was like, and and yeah. And he was like, and he was like, so that's the best advice that I can give you. If you, if you really want to build your career, he said, go client side, don't stay on the agency side. And then he kind of went into some other things and then he kind of said, okay, good luck. He left me on my way. And I just felt like my heart like dropped, you know? So that was another really aha moment for me. Wow. And and that's from someone that, you know, is arguably probably at the pinnacle of their career of aspiring to, you know, be everything you can be to have your own company business. Yeah. That's wow. Yeah. Uh, so, Raman, I want to ask you, given your, your story was was a little bit of a, a different experience, and, and I also think it's something many people probably can relate to, you know, especially if you grow up in a environment where you're not exposed to, you know, quote unquote, a, a deep spread of your culture, and you sometimes adapt to the culture you're in. Did you ever have any interactions, you know, whether it was with family members or traveling where you felt like almost like you didn't fit in your own culture? Pretty much everywhere I go, <laughs> like I, you know, I actually did an assignment in Singapore. Would have been like it was 2007, and um, Singapore, Southeast Asia, it's a hub for many companies like Google, PNG, L'Oreal, whatever. And um, but two of the major markets that you're serving are China and India, and usually sometimes the Philippines as well. And so at our office, there are a lot of people from that office, from the India office, the Philippines office, who are now working at the HQ office in Singapore. And so there were a lot of Indian people in the office. And I just felt like I was the dumb American. I'm not going to lie, because there weren't a lot of Americans. There's a lot of Europeans, Australians. It's even like in a quote unquote big city like Cincinnati or New York, when I meet other Indian people or go to a friend's wedding and it's like this crowd of Indian people who all went to college together, went to their Ivy or something. I, I just don't vibe with that group. I I've tried, if anything, what I've learned is the Indian people that this will get me in trouble, but the Indian people that I tend to get along with are the ones who have the exact same experience as me. So if you're from like Atlanta or Houston or New Jersey and you're Indian, we're probably not going to click as well just because like, and that, there's an irony to that because like we have different experiences. We should be gelling to share. I'm, I'm intellectually curious, emotionally curious about your story, but I'm just like, yeah, I don't want an Indian wedding. <laughs> like, you know, like I had to break my mom's heart with that. Fortunately, my black brother-in-law gave my parents the, the Indian wedding. So he gets to be the favorite, but <laughs> I, uh, he, he had to, you know, he had some pressure he had to deal with. So good on him. But yeah, I, I actually feel this like weird awkwardness. Uh, another story. I've only been to India three times in my life. 
six as a kid and then a bunch of bad stuff happened to my dad's family so we never went back and then the second time 23 27 27 when i was living in singapore but the 23 trip my dad and i went i just finished business school i was like dude i'm going i don't speak that much hindi you should come with me and i already know how to backpack and i had all these grad school buddies that were indians so, oh you come to my town i'll show you around and we totally took them up on that but i've never felt more american and not, this is not a compliment. I love being American, to be clear. But like, I've never felt more American than being in India. Like, I was just like, I am a fish out of water here. I don't fit in here. I remember um, going to the Taj Mahal. At most monuments in India, there's the local rate, what Indians pay, and then there's the tourist rate. And so I'm there with my dad. And my dad goes up to the ticket counter and he buys the tickets. And he's like, you know, two, in, two, two passes at the lower rate. And they're like, that boy, they're pointing to me. He's not Indian. And I was like, like, you know, I, I was even like trying to dress Indian, speaking in my like broken Hindi, but like the way I dressed, the way I had my beard cut at the time, you know, the way I walked yeah. and just, I reek of not being Indian. And so I've, I've just come to accept it. I, I guess I'm rumming. That's all I can be. I, even when I go to Alabama, I don't feel like I fit in. So it's, it's this weird, I've just become comfortable in my discomfort, I guess. Yeah. No, that it, it, it's just so fascinating because I, I think that there's shared par parallels to many other people that probably have had similar experiences where, you know, for me, you know, I, I grew up in most of my adolescence was spent in Indiana where, you know, most of the kids were, were white. We had our, you know, our one Asian kid. I was the one black kid and, you know, maybe, you know, a couple of other, you know, check boxes, if you will that, you know, we're, we're, we grew up together and it was the same thing where I don't think I ever really, like I knew I was black, but I didn't like, it wasn't like something that really stood out. And, you know, I, I would argue that I probably tried to play it down if anything else to fit in. And then you find yourself, you know, I, I would attend summer conferences or leadership things that, you know, my, my mom would put me in where I'm surrounded by other black students. And it's like, I didn't fit in there either. And and it's like, because you've adopted this other identity, if you will, it makes it hard to fit in somewhere. And now a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. Wait, what? Didn't we already encourage everyone to get their vaccine? And boosters. Of course. And boosters, dude. What do you think this is? Amateur hour? Sure thing, Sharon. But as you can tell from the leaves outside, it's autumn. I live in LA. As the rest of us can tell from the leaves outside, it's autumn, aka my favorite time of the year. Ah, uh, yes, autumn. A time for harvest festivals and family reunions. Don't you mean mid-autumn moon festivals? And festivals of light. And football season. Okay, dude, enough with the sci-fi fake news. We all know you're just watching more Star Wars, Game of Thrones, and Lord of the Rings after your kids are asleep. Okay, okay, fine. But all that other non-streaming stuff this fall involves family and friends. That's right. And if you're planning on getting together with your family, you should protect yourself and them by getting an updated COVID vaccine. If you're 50 or older, you're at the greatest risk for hospitalization and death, especially if you have a chronic disease. This is literally something my better half and I have been talking about 
for the fall before we see our parents again. Same here. So we want to make sure that all of you, our ridiculously smart and influential favorite podcast listeners, get your latest, greatest COVID vaccine. That's right, Sharon. COVID is still serious stuff. So we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love to aim. Because honestly, we ain't the spring chickens we used to be. COVID is no joke. So we all have to do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and the communities we work and live in. Protect all of our tomorrows this fall with a vaccine today. The COVID-19 vaccine is safe, effective, and free. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find vaccines and boosters near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We are big fans of But now, back to our show. And so I, I guess with that context and knowing that all of us have children and all of our children are biracial, I'm curious if you guys think, will they benefit from being biracial that they don't necessarily, they're not expected to be in a box or will it be similar where they feel that kind of that pull where you're not enough of this or you're not enough of that. And there's like this identity search. So I, I want to give a quick answer, but I want to put it back on both of you guys because my little girl is half Chinese, half Indian. And so she's got some, she looks Thai or Hispanic, right? Like, And I do think there's something about third generation versus second generation, right? Like, I just think it kind of washes out. But both of you guys, Matt, you're black and your wife is not. But I would imagine, and I have a nephew and niece who are half black, half Indian. They're black. By by the eyes of society, they are black, right? Sharon, your kids, your your husband is black. Your two little boys are black. You know, it's, I I know you don't feel that way, but perception is reality. How do you? How are you guys going to, I mean, because it's a very different calculus, mine versus both of you guys. Matt, I'll let Sharon take it first. first. No. <laughs> hope, hope so, I, so I get, you know, I'll, I'll do it with a, with a story. So this has been a few years ago. We were traveling as a family and my, with, so, so my wife is, you know, Mexican American and her parents uh, came here from from Mexico, so they, you know, she's first generation. But we were traveling actually to Mexico for vacation, and it was I don't know why, but myself and our oldest daughter were buying something. Like I don't know if it was like a you know a last minute gift or something at one of the little convenience stores in the airport. And I must have had like a drink, or I must have had something of liquid that I spilled as I was going to pay, and you know, as I do that, the people that were checking us out started speaking in Spanish. And while I know a few phrases, I am nowhere near fluent, but our oldest daughter is. And like literally her reaction to what they were saying, I could tell that like they had just said something inappropriate about me. Mm. But to your point, when they saw both of us, they saw two black Americans and they had no idea Mm -hmm. that one, she would be able to understand what they were saying. And so like, for me, that kind of summarizes your point, but I, but I also, you know, the, the idealist in me hopes that we get to a space where we're no longer expecting people to, you know, check the census box of, are you black of no Hispanic descent or are you, you know, this, are you that? For me, I, I, I hope that our kids grow up in a world where the different layers of their makeup are able to be exposed and valued equally as opposed to the expectation that they, you know, like, again, for me, are you, are you black enough? Are you, you know, because you're not doing the thing that we expect black people to do. So I hope that that goes away, but you know, again, that may be idealistic and, and, you know, not realistic, but 
Sharon? Yeah, I, I would echo a lot of that. I think, so being the non-Black parent, I sometimes feel left out because, <laughs> because my kids, my kids are outwardly, I think, definitely identifying more um, with their Black roots just because to Raman's point, like physically they're darker skinned and, and all of that. And what's interesting is they're still, they're still young enough where um, I don't think they've really, I, at least from my knowledge experience, any kind of racism. So they're six and eight They're I, I think they're getting to the point where that might start to happen, but they haven't overtly experienced it, but they'll notice it themselves when they're in situations where they are the only black kids so when we're walking through Chinatown, for example, my younger son, who's six, was like, mommy, do you think everyone else thinks we don't belong here? Which to me is a question. What? Yeah. Which is a question that indicates that he's self-aware that he looks different from everybody else. And then he's also aware that other people look at him differently from everybody else. Right. So it's like this double layer of awareness. And it's coming out as a question of, what it, mom, what do you think everyone else is thinking of us at this moment? Because I don't feel like I belong. It's almost this weird, maybe I'm thinking too much into it, but that's how it comes out sometimes. And I'm like, I'm like, well, Sally, you're, you are Chinese. And he's like, yes, but I don't look like them. Right. So it's like this. And that's when, and so I joke, like, that's when I feel left out. Cause I'm like, but dude, you are like, you're half Chinese. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're half of me. Take out your 5G. You can use them. Right? I'm like, exactly. Right. Take out your chopsticks. Like, come on, let's do this. But so there's that. So I think, you know, as a parent, sometimes we do things and for better or worse, I don't know if this is going to negatively or positively impact them later, but we've made a conscious effort to enroll them in schools that are very diverse so that they don't feel different. And for, for me, it was very important that, that they saw kids around them that looked like them, as well as kids that didn't look like, like them at all, because I also recognize that we can't create this bubble of, well, first of all, you can't find a school of all Asian kids, which would take <laughs> who they are, right? But also... Um, shielding them in that way, or at least exposing them to environments where diversity is, is, is kind of curated. And then I think from there, I think it's, it's a little bit of like me knowing that I'm never a hundred percent going to be able to relate to their exact unique experience because one, I'm not a boy. So there's the gender component of it, but um, as someone who's Chinese American and who's not a mixed race person, and certainly not black. Like I think those are all very unique things. And so I do kind of lean on my husband a lot to guide some of those things. Like we haven't had that talk with them yet that everyone talks about, but we're going to have to. Yeah. Right. And well, it, no, I was, I was, I was crying on your podcast, Matt. Oh man. Damn it, Ramen. Maybe Sharon just has an MO on podcast. <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I think I just find a way, find a way to let the tears fall. But well, I, I yeah. was going to say I, I did not intend to take us down this, you know, parent <laughs> corner for for right. Bill Simmons uh, fans. But I, I did want to, you know, something you hit on of in putting them in diverse environments. I'm curious because we we do the exact same thing. It, it's like you know, literally, like our, our oldest daughter, she's in school, and the only. Like, like, like there is, I don't even think there is anyone that is like, to your point, Robin, a hundred percent anything. Like it's, it's literally just like a, you know, kind of every single culture you could think of. I mean, obviously we benefit from living in a, in a community that has that diversity to pull from, but I, but I am curious because we have had experiences where, you know, whether it's other schools or, or things that she's been exposed to that aren't as diverse, that it's a bit of a shock to the system. 
And it sounds like both of you had those moments of your own that were shocks to the system. So I'm, I'm curious as, as a parent, do you think, it, is it better to delay the shock or no. do you want it to happen early so early. that you kind no. of, yeah, go ahead. I'll give you two very specific examples. Like, so one back to like when I went to India as a six-year-old, it's a different shock. This one's about socioeconomics. I was a six-year-old kid visiting my dad's family in India <clears throat> and we were in the auto rickshaw, the tuk-tuk going somewhere. And if you've been to India, poverty everywhere. And you just kind of ignore it. It's just like in the air. But like kids my age rushing. I mean, I saw kids my age as a six-year-old, five, six, four-year-old, impoverished, coming up to us, begging for money, clearly in rags. You've, you've seen the movies. And that shocked to my system. You better believe I ate everything on my plate when I got home for the mm. next five years, right? Yeah. And I, I took away from that experience. I, I wish every Westerner, American, Nordic, British, like... Sure, if you're going to go to Mexico, but go see the poverty just just down the street, you know, experience that early. The shock to the system will change your frame of reference of everything. And uh, again, you know, we just moved to Connecticut. And in case you don't know the demographics of Connecticut, it is very vanilla here. And my daughter is now the token brown kid versus the previous daycares we were in. She wasn't. It was a lot of mixed. It's literally you change. You move 10 miles down the border in the, the tri-state area in New York, Connecticut. And it's a very different environment. And I know she's actually struggling with that. She's There was one other Chinese kid that was in the school and they they went they moved on to a different Chinese language school. And the conversations at the dinner table, it's like, I can tell how upset she is. And, and it hurts me. And I know it hurts her, but I kind of think this is better. Like you've got to learn to be that chameleon. Maybe that, the formation of the superpower, Matt, right, is... Living in adversity, experiencing adversity, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And like, I'm going to take care of her, but I'd rather have the hard experience and not a thick skin, but just like build the muscle, build the instinct to learn and adapt. And I don't think you get that in a, I could be wrong maybe. And I'm saying this because I grew up in, you know, the token brown kid, the outsider, but I think it's really valuable. I think diversity is valuable and having those uncomfortable, diverse experiences in work, in socioeconomics, in race, I, I think it matters. I think that's what's okay. missing in our culture. But here's the thing, right? There's diversity in terms of American diversity. But if we take it one level up, there's global diversity. Oh, yeah. And so the the school that my kids have been going to up until now is the United Nations International School. And so literally the kids in their school are not just French, but they're from France. Or they're not, you know, just Mexican. They're from Mexico. And I think in those situations, there's there tends to, and I guess because it's the UN, <laughs> but there tends to be a lot more interest and curiosity in, hey, what makes you different from me? And hey, I'm also curious about what makes us the same, right? So it's it's a lot of like, yes, we look different and we're from different cultures and my parents speak a different language than your parents, but what do we have in common that we can bond over? Whereas I think in America, it it sort of appears in a completely different way. Yeah, I, I think you hit on something there that it actually exposes them to an appreciation and almost say, you know, like they're developing those empathetic muscles at such an early age that yeah. I can say I honestly did not have until probably my 30s, if, if that. And so I, I think that it 
you know, if, if I were to break it down, I don't think there's like a fail-proof way or else we all would be doing that one way. It, it truly comes down to that individual, you know, child personality, et cetera, of what, what is it that you think they need once they're exposed to different things? Because, you know, I, I, I can definitely see the benefits of giving that exposure, but then when they do go to a more Americanized environment and they're forced to, you know, I can remember sitting on buses and like, you know, it becomes the, you know, everybody's jonesing on each other. And if you, if you have never been exposed to that, like you become the butt of the joke and you become, you know, the one that gets the nickname, the one that leaves never, never wanting to go to the thing again because you just weren't prepared for it. And, and so like, I could say that some of my wit today comes from being able to, you know, weather those storms in like sixth, seventh and eighth grade, (laughs) but go ahead. No, I was going to say like, in international school, just use that as an example, or sending your kid to India at six, like, I don't think those experiences scale. Like it just, and so the question is, like, every American can't have that, right? And, and so there is a privilege element to it. But I, I think it's like, just how do you, as a parent, how do you just then create those exposures, find the opportunity, it doesn't have to be the international UN school. There's a lot of people who can't afford that, right? It can't be that go to India to see your relatives and see poor kids, like, can't afford that either. Right. But it's, so it's just, how do we as a culture create more scalable exposure on both sides? Right. Like I would argue the, the Indian kid in Alabama, how do you make sure he goes to more Diwali events in Atlanta, you know, or rides that bus or whatever? I I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, but I do know we're not doing something right in our society. Like, you know, it's like we clearly don't have enough empathy still. And um, maybe maybe in pockets, we're all super woke. We're all, you know, super coastal. But uh, it's not happening enough. It's not scaling enough. And honestly, that's to bring it back to the podcast, ours and even yours, Matt. I think this scales more. What we're doing scales more. We've had I've had so many anecdotes come in now. From my Sharon and I joke when we were strategizing this podcast, we're like, "Who's our prime prospect? Right? Who's our target audience?" Mm-hmm. And it's not other model minorities in the traditional sense, Asians. Yeah. It's actually people in the majority, and we're all in the majority, and we're all in the minority. So I'm in the minority because I'm brown, but I'm also kind of in the majority because I'm a male in the business world, right? And so I think, ex- like, design making that our design target to like pull out those uncomfortable truths, whether it's, you know, Alexis or she's at the forays, she's Puerto Rican, right? Sharon, she was like, I can't tell the difference between gunfire and fireworks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or Carl, white guy from the Midwest talking about his experience, meeting his first Asian kid and his first experience in racism at Little League. And, and we, we've had to, we, you know, I, I, by teasing out those nuggets, like wrapping up the show and kind of fun conversations with interesting people with interesting titles, comedians, etc. That's the sugarcoating of the bitter pill of the different experience that you, you, Matt, me, Ruman, you, Sharon, we cannot understand until I hear it. And chances are I would never be at a bar with that person. Because it's just it's the design of our work. We want to try to be woke and talk to people of different backgrounds, but it's, it's hard, it's forced. So as I think about scaling, like that's literally one of the thesis of the podcast, how do I scale like, and, and podcasts are super an intimate experience. We're literally talking in people's ears right now while, while you're cooking, while you're driving to pick up your kids or, you know, whatever you're doing. And I, I think that's the beauty of what you're doing as well, Matt. Like, I, I really feel like we're flip sides of the same coin. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I agree definitely with the the idea of how do you how do you scale that? How do you expose people to something? It's it's also, you know, taking your analogy a bit further, it's easier to digest if I can opt into listening to a podcast for an hour or, you know, be able to follow an interesting story versus going more kind of aggressively out to, to expand my own personal network to meet people that don't look like me. Um, so I do think it's kind of a segue, if you will, into allowing people to expand a bit further. So I'm going to pull up a little bit from a, a level and, and, and get into a bit more fun if you, if you will. And, you know, some of, some of the things that I think, you know, can, can lead to interesting answers for, for both of you. And, you know, maybe we'll start with you, Raman first. Have you had a, a mama, we made it moment? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. We'll skip you and uh, we'll go to Sharon if Sharon knows what that is. <laughs> oh, I can't talk about it yet. But yes. Okay. Oh, I know what Sharon's yes. is. It'll Show probably it. be public by the time this podcast goes oh, up. Well, I don't know. I haven't signed any. Like the, you know, the contracts haven't been signed. Uh, Matt, Matt, I got one for you. I got one for you. Now I, I, now I understand. Once Sharon, t- uh, yeah, okay. I quit my fancy corporate job to go to a mentor startup, right? where no one knew the name on my business card, no one would return our phone calls. I cut my salary in half and took single-digit equity in the company. Five years later, the company got bought for a lot of money. And look, this isn't like, mama, we're going to buy a boat moment. But it was a all of that hell in that first year, and I was there for three years. The ego bruising, the roller coaster, everything, proving to myself that I could do it. And you know, just proving that I could do it was enough. But the validation of, and I remember the email from the founder of the company to all the early employees because we were all on the cap table. It was that moment. It was such a high five moment because we helped build this thing that had this amazing exit. Honestly, it's the thing that's subsidizing me doing some of the work that I'm doing right now in political action, the podcast, and some of the other stuff I'm working on in secret. But um, that was my moment. Is is It was such a, and it was an earned moment too. And I, I, I'm guessing that's what part of it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what what I want to ask a follow up to that is both of you and, and, you know, we didn't talk about your, your stops and in, in history of how you got here, but, you know, you guys have traditional corporate backgrounds and then you have made your way into more entrepreneurial opportunities and, and created your own opportunities, which is like amazing. So I'm, I'm curious, where did that come from? Because, you know, typically I, I would, you know, not to generalize, but I would say, most underrepresented groups tend to go safer route and you know they they don't always have the the blueprint for following an entrepreneurial spirit and and both of you have like gone after that and not just like tipped your dipped your toe in it but you've actually gone after it full steam ahead so i am curious to know where does that come from and where's that confidence and that foresight for you really derive from yeah that's a great question and it's one that i've reflected on a lot because i am an entrepreneur now and you know, we've got our high points and then we've got our, sometimes it's low, like weeks or months, depending on what's happening. So I think for me, education was always a big part of uh, my upbringing. Like my parents were very, very just really strict about, you know, we could, like we could do anything, but we could not do poorly in school. I mean, typical model minority type stuff. So really focusing a lot on academics was a big part of um, my childhood and my upbringing. 
And obviously they wanted me to be a doctor and all that stuff. And never became a doctor, never made it to medical school. And I worked in corporate for close to 20 years, so over 15 years, and then finally quit and started my own thing. And when I did, my parents were actually really supportive, which I thought was, I was surprised. I didn't think that they'd be as, I mean, we had the typical, you know, are, are you sure? What the hell are you doing moment? Are you sure this is the right decision? What the hell are you doing? Like, I expected all that, but I kind of also expected worse and the worst didn't happen. And so I started my own, I started to run my own company and I started to do things that seemed like natural. And I was like, oh, I just must be born to be an entrepreneur, you know, just kind of like really patting myself on the back and first time you get a really big check from a client or the first time, you know, big things happened. And then I took a step back and I was like, wait, like, I don't think this is really coming from my gut. Like, where am I getting this from? And Matt, I'm such a dork, right? Like I took a step back and I was like, well, what do my parents do? They own their own mm. insurance company. Yeah. They are entrepreneurs. What did my grandparents do? So my dad's father, he started one of the first Chinese restaurants in Chinatown. And I had never looked at them as entrepreneurs because to me, like my grandfather was a cook in a Chinese restaurant, right? Yeah. He was a partner too. But in my mind, if you were to ask me, well, what is your grandfather? I'd be like, oh, he's a, he's, he, I wouldn't even have called him a chef. Um, like that wouldn't have been a word that I would have used. I would have just said he was a cook because it wasn't glamorized in that way. And when I take a step back, I'm like, no, wait, he started his own business. Like he worked really hard and that man, he would go down to the restaurant up until his mid nineties. He lived until he was in his late nineties, but he, he would literally go in and make wontons every morning with the staff in that restaurant. Cause it was his, it was his baby. And same thing with my parents, you know, like they, they run their own business. So they had their tough times and they had their good you know years and they're very successful now, but we really lived through that kind of growing up and, and, and it's not something where, you know, they've had a series A or they had an IPO and, you know, they're on the cover of Fortune. But as small business owners, they really are entrepreneurs. And so I think it's been really validating because I find myself speaking on panels sometimes or just kind of talking to people of color coming up who who want to start their own thing. And I always say, you know, you have it in you. Because if you look, if you look at the history of groups like ours, we're all entrepreneurs. Like all of the you know, almost every immigrant community is full of entrepreneurs. And in fact, it's almost the opposite. There's more, I, would, I don't know if this is factual, but it seems like there's more small business owners um, of color than there are, you know, people um, kind of leading corporate, corporate um, companies. And so I think, I actually feel like as much as I want to say, I, I went off the beaten path, I actually really didn't fall very far from the apple tree at all. That's great. No, that, that That is a recognition of the lineage in a different light than what you probably thought of it as a kid or, or growing up and, and thinking about how they were almost forced to be entrepreneurs, if you will, like they didn't have another choice. Exactly. Um, but that doesn't make the skill set or the ingenuity that they brought to it any less of a superpower. Yeah. Um, I do want to get to, you know, one question that I always love to hear answers uh, from, from guests. If, or I should say in both of your cases, when they turn your life story into a movie, who do you want to play you on the big screen? We'll start with Raman. You know, it's funny. Sharon and I get into this argument all the time. 
uh probably because like she is famous like sharon wants to be more famous i don't <laughs> like i want the i know seriously i want the work to be famous i want to be the guy behind the guy behind the guy or the gal you know like i just i don't i literally like change my name change my voice cast it with like the rock someone who doesn't look anything like me <laughs> recast it as a woman i don't care like i don't want people <laughs> to know <laughs> like which is ironic because I'm on a podcast and I'm on someone else's podcast now. Yeah. It's like, this is my voice. That's about it. You know, the written word, the, the voice. I, I, Sharon and I got into arguments when we were starting the podcast. Like, I don't want to put our picture on the thing. You oh, know? It, was, it was awful. He, he was pulling all these stock photos of like, I'm like, women, no. Like, <laughs> me and you. And that's how we got to the illustration format i was kind of like how about this and i sent him you know the two of us rotoscoped into essentially like almost like comic characters and he was like yeah okay i'm okay with that <laughs> yeah that, that makes sense what about you sharon jessica alba please even though she's yeah. like <laughs> that, that one's ready to go that was much easier um so what would the so you may be able to answer this one then what would be the trailer of your movie what what would it communicate Wow, that's such a good question. Matt Story, you and your questions, huh? <laughs> in, first, a world. in a world. I, my first, I don't know why I thought of this. I thought of like Aaron Brockovich for some reason. Just kind of like, I, yeah, why did I think of her? I feel like it would, you'd see somebody who is really trying to make a difference in some way and pushing through and finding her own way and succeeding doing that oh man we are not in the same movie my no. friend <laughs> i was like uh wes anderson like a very quirky and weird but heart like that's like i'm a weirdo we're all weirdos but like when some of the stuff we've just been talking about for the last 30 minutes like there's if you don't have heart for it, like you, you absolutely like it's table stakes to like know your stuff, whatever profession you're in, whatever you do, be it a podcaster, a marketer. But if you don't bring heart to it, that's why I love what people have this love hate relationship with his movies, like Royal Ten of Bombs, Rushmore, Grand Budapest Hotel. But it's like there's so much weirdness. We're all weirdos with all our eccentricities, all the details of our lives and our stories. But if you peel it back, we're all humans with, with, emotions and loves and aspirations and heart heart is the word i've been really thinking about a lot in the past few weeks yeah so mine would be a wes anderson trailer gotcha so i'm a huge fan of stories it's why i do the podcast it's why i want to you know sit down with people like you and and learn more about what your experiences have been this may be a little easier for you because you guys are podcast hosts but if you could hear from three people they could be still living or no longer with us who would be the three stories you'd want to hear? Let's start with Sharon. Oh, man. Oh, man. He's going to tell yes. Oh, Stalling tactic. Gosh, this is hard. Because I was I, like, I would say Michelle Obama, but we've already heard her story. And we're about to hear more of her stories with her new podcast. That counts. Podcast. It still counts. Counts. Okay. So I'd say her. I. Three people, huh? Two more. I, I used to always really love Helen Keller. When I was young, like I read her biography and was really inspired by her. I think I'd love to just like interview her now live, you know, that would be pretty cool if she came back from the dead. 
And then sometimes when I just walk down the street and I see someone who's living on the streets, I'm really curious about their story. And so I don't have one person in mind, like we don't have a neighborhood person that I can think of, but I, you know, and, and I might actually, now that you said that, I feel like I might actually do that. Like, like once COVID is over and people are actually talking to each other again within close proximity, I, I would just really want to know kind of all of the, you know, the experiences that brought them to, to where they are, whether it was a choice of theirs or, or not. So. Jeez, that's a hard question, man. <laughs> Three, not even one. I know. Um, one would, you know, this is, it's a weird cheesy answer, but I would, I don't know this guy. I know nothing about him or this girl, even my great grandma or my great grandmother. Like just Sharon talked about something about like, there's nature and nurture. There's things in our DNA. And we all know this when I'm, when we're raising our children, we see ourselves in these people, these little personality quirks, you know, and you've seen the movie where, you know, they go back in time and it's the same actor playing them. But it's like, I long for what are those similarities and differences, yeah. you know, time and space are not a constraint. That one's really fascinating to me because I'm, we are unique, but I'm not like, there's a guy or a girl just like me a hundred years prior mm-hmm. that I share DNA with. That's, that's one uh, the other one, this is going to be a weird one, this guy, John J. Muth. He's a children's author, but he was originally a comic book artist. And if you haven't read some of his work, Zen Tales, The Three Questions, it's just transcendent. Not just his art, but his his way with words. And um, actually, I, I wrote a kid's book and I wrote him a letter and I sent him a copy. And he sent me a really nice note back. And I kind of need to create a podcast where I can get them to come on. <laughs> Maybe my secret comic <laughs> book podcast, which is a thing. And number three, Gandhi, I guess. And not for the obvious reasons. I don't want Gandhi at the end of his life after India got its independence. I want lawyer Gandhi in South Africa, the guy who was architecting the plans for what he was going to do. And to be clear, he was on the wrong side of some issues early on as a lawyer in South Africa. And then he saw things and changed his perspective. And at that moment, because we're all presented with like these forks in the road, like, yeah, like young man, 25 year old Durban, South Africa, Gandhi, because the world was different. The the culture, the expectations of what was allowed and what wasn't different. And he was, he held those biases too, I think to a degree, but kind of pre awakening or like, you know, 10 minutes post awakening Gandhi. Yeah. 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 Cool. So is there anything I didn't ask that you guys want to share or anything you want to ask me? How do we, how do we make it better, Matt? Seriously. Like I, I, th- we're what, I don't what month is it right now. We're in July. The water temperature is only getting hotter. I don't, I'm, I've become more of a pessimist. Sharon's had to talk me off a cliff on the podcast a couple of times. Uh, I'm trying to find, I'm literally actively working on solutions, right? Like, and, you know, hacking at things. Uh, the podcast is one, but like, what would you tell people? Or what would you tell people to seek to understand or to think about? Because you're kind of doing it with the show, yeah. but you know you're yeah. in the background on the show mostly. Yeah, it, by no means do I profess to have answers for for all the various ails of the world. But I, if I had to pick things, a couple of things I would say is is one is stop seeking to be heard and just seek to understand. Because I, I think a lot of times our natural reaction 
anytime someone says something we don't understand is say, but this is what I meant, or this is what I thought, or this is what I intended. And 10 times out of 10, that is the inappropriate way to go about it. And we have to realize that our intentions, even if they're well and well intended and, and we have goodness in our heart, if it hurts someone else, it doesn't matter what we intended. So I, I think we have to just understand where other people are coming from. I think the second thing, which has been something that's come up in a lot of discussions I've been having is we have to seek to be bold because incremental change is not going to do it. And this is, you know, at least as it relates to the things I'm trying to to, to work on, like, you know, sy- systemic inequalities in this country for over 400 years, we're not going to change overnight. And we're not definitely going to change from just tweaking things. We have to like be bold and we have to be willing to do things completely differently. And the art of the possible is not how we're going to get there. So I, I would say that, you know, those are probably two things for me is first, like seek to understand and not seek to be heard. And then secondly, like not be afraid to be bold and look for new ideas everywhere. And and obviously, I think all us older people have to get out of the way and let the youth figure it out, too, because they're the ones. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, honestly. No, not even their problem, but they, they, they're they much more open-minded. They're much more creative. They're much more dynamic than we are because we're rooted in what we grew up in and we're, we're, we're grounded in our own experiences, which limits our creativity. And, and so I, I feel like, I mean, it's always amazing to me. If you look at any, like, like take John Lewis, like, you know, recently just passed. He's 23. Um, yeah. He was 23 when he gave those speeches. And I mean, like, if you think about what a lot of these great leaders are able to do at such a young age, like, I think it's just phenomenal to think like, we are not listening to the 23 year olds. We're not listening to the 17 year olds. We're not listening to what they have to say because we're like, oh, you don't know anything, you, you know, get off my lawn. And so like, I, I truly like, it sounded like a jest, but I'm, I, I'm truly serious. Like, I feel like we have to get out of the way and let the, let the youth lead us into what the future should be and can be. I'm going to challenge that a little or tweak it. I think it's, we have to enable them. We literally have to give them the tools. It's not just get out of their way. It's like, uh, yep, I'm going to step aside. And I think about this as a parent. It's like, how do I teach you and equip you to, to use that power, that energy, that boldness to go do things, you know, like to teach you how to scale or, you know, if, if we have resources, fund them. Like literally, I have friends protesting out West right now. I have a kid. I can't go to as many protests as I want to. Right. Mm-hmm. It's harder. So, and he was, this buddy of mine was like, well, here's the five things you can do to help us. I was like, got it. And like, so yeah, it's like, how do we enable them even more? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good build. Cool. So before I let you guys get back to your busy days and, and busy lives and beautiful families, where should listeners go if they want to connect with you or they want to find out more? Uh, modmypod.com. Uh, um, and just pick a couple episodes. I would actually recommend the Matt episode because he gave us a harder time. <laughs> <laughs> Rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Just hit subscribe. Listen to an episode. Leave us a review. But if you want to learn what the show's about, modmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. Great. Well, I appreciate you both taking the time and yes, definitely check out Mono Minorities and, and we'll, we'll be in touch. I'm sure there's more we can do together. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ModMinPod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. 
I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.